0: I'm Lauren Sherman, the writer behind Puck's Fashion and Beauty Memo Line Sheet, and I'd like to welcome you to my new show, Fashion People. On every episode of Fashion People, I'll be talking to insiders about the stuff we're all whispering between the press releases, from M&A rumors to celebrity stylist Dish to the future of legacy media. Be sure to follow and listen to Fashion People, a presentation of Odyssey in partnership with Puck, available on the free Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts.
1: C-13
2: Originals. When I was in high school, getting ready to apply to college, there was one school I wanted to go to. I kind of felt like if I got into my dream school, that was the finish line. And then everything would be okay. And I remember... Waking up the morning, I was supposed to take the SATs because I was going to keep the cover up for my parents. I got up at 8.30 on a Saturday. I said, "Okay, Mom, I'm off to take the test. And she said, "Okay, good luck. And it was a beautiful day out, sunshine. The birds were singing. And I was painting this mural with my friends. I was actually on campus of my high school. And I remember just looking up at all the classrooms surrounding me, and everyone else was inside taking this god-awful test. And I just felt great. I remember thinking, like, wow, I could be in there suffering under this test, and look at where I am. I'm out here. I'm enjoying myself. I'm making art. And as we're doing it, I'm getting a 1400. I remember just kind of smiling to myself, thinking like, "Wow, I'm uh, I'm getting away
3: with this." That's Mike. You may remember him telling this story at the very beginning of the season. Mike had a fake ID made and paid someone else to get him a 1400 on his SAT which got Mike into his dream school. I said back then that kids cheating to help get themselves into college and hiding it from their parents was nothing new. But parents cheating to get their kids in and not telling them was an entirely different story. But no matter who's doing the cheating, there's always a price to pay, no matter how big or how small the scam. Here's Mike.
2: I mean, the attitude of doing whatever it takes to get you somewhere is important. But at the same time, there's the flip side of if you're cutting corners, it's going to snap back on you in some way. There is a karmic debt, and it might not be obvious, and it might not even be huge, but something is going to come back and slap you in the face. The first time I realized this was freshman year of college, I was in an economics class and I was, I was not doing very well. My time management was non-existent and I just, I wasn't doing well because I wasn't prioritizing the class. And I remember talking to my mom on the phone and saying, you know, I, I think I really dropped the ball in this one class. I, I really screwed up the finals coming up and I'm really far behind. And I think I might flunk this test. And she said, well, you know, honey, remember how nervous you were about the SATs and look how great you did on that test. And I thought, "Uh uh-huh. Yeah. Well, that's uh, i deserve that, you know, (laughs) my mom was giving me all this encouragement and she had no idea. And I, I just shook my head at myself and, you know, I said, yeah, thanks mom. Um, That was, that was the first moment where I realized you didn't get off scot-free even if you got in the dream school, even if you never got caught. There's still a price to be paid.
0: Dear parents, it is the loss of dignity, humanity, and morality.
3: It's the home run of home runs. Rick, if you could change one decision in your life, what would it be? Rick, no comment? We help the wealthiest families in the U.S., get their kids into school. If you had wanted to, I mean, my daughter's score could have been a 1550, right? I'm Andrew Jenks, and this is Gangster Capitalism. Season one, the college admissions scandal. For any good to come out of the college admissions scandal, There has to be an open and honest dialogue about problems and solutions. We've tried to provide a forum for that. Since our last episode, a lot has happened, so we wanted to revisit this story. And to bring things full circle, we've come back to Mike, who happens to be a friend of mine. Mike's karmic debt realization about cheating came to him early, in his freshman year of college. But in the context of both this scandal and this podcast— I asked Mike, now several years removed from college, if the very notion of a dream school was even worth it. I was surprised by his answer.
2: What took me a while to learn was that it's a mistake to entirely put your faith into institutions in the sense that even if you get into a great school, it's still all on you. You know, I I, I kind of felt like What If I got into my dream school, Like that was the finish line. The sense of it was there was this tier to reach and that if you got in the club, you'd be golden. Had I not got into my dream school, I would have been fine. I would have probably licked my wounds for a while and maybe had a slight chip on my shoulder. But an institution or a seal of approval is is not going to save you. It's going to feel good. It's going to feel like you're in part of a club. But at the end of the day, you know, it's not going to make or break you. It, it might feel that way, but it's it's not going to be the determining factor. If you take someone who's extremely motivated and who has plans and goals and drive and ambition, and you deny them entry into their dream schools, they're going to find a way. They're going to keep going.
3: That sense of building resilience and agency is what guests of this podcast have said that the parents involved in this scandal have stolen from their kids. Had those parents been able to look past the sense of status associated with a handful of top schools, they may have learned that studies show that school rankings have no correlation to future earnings. And more importantly how a student engages in their college has a much larger effect than the school itself. But they didn't look past the status symbol. And now there's a real, tangible price to be paid. This story first broke back on March 12th. And now, finally, sentences are starting to be handed out. Beginning with the most high-profile one. Breaking news late today: Actress Felicity Huffman sentenced to 14 days in prison for the college in what cheating scandal. Say is the
4: largest college admissions cheating scam ever prosecuted? Huffman's also being ordered to pay a thirty thousand dollar fine, due 250 hours of community service. A case
3: framed by privilege and affluence, the desperate housewife star is the first to face sentencing.
0: All
5: eyes are now on Full House star Lori Loughlin. You're Lori Loughlin, and you're looking at this. You take a plea tomorrow. Lori Loughlin's case is much more serious than Huffman. Because she has decided to plead not guilty, take the risk
2: of going to trial against the biggest law firm in the world, which is the federal it
5: government. Is now facing up to 40 years in prison. On September
3: 13th, actress Felicity Huffman was the first of more than 30 parents charged in Rick Singer's scheme to be sentenced. Huffman paid $15,000 to Singer to have his accomplice take the SAT for her daughter. And for that, she'll spend 14 days in prison. Former state and federal prosecutor and current CNN legal analyst, Ellie Honig, says Huffman's sentence sets the bar for the other parents.
4: We're still fairly early in this case. At the moment, only a handful of those charged defendants have pled guilty. What lies ahead is decision time. They have to decide whether they're going to take a guilty plea or whether they're going to push their luck and go to trial. Both of those routes are fairly fraught. As a prosecutor, when you're looking at a big takedown like this, when you have a couple dozen defendants, you have to at least sort of put them in different tiers, different groupings. And you want to make sure that the end sentences reflect the seriousness of the conduct for each of those groupings you want to make sure you have proportionality and looking at this case huffman to me would seem to be on the low end the far low end of things for for a couple of reasons it's worse to bribe the university than it is to pay a proctor to look the other way on an sat neither of them is okay but if i'm evaluating which conduct is worse i think felicity huffman's conduct fell on the lower end of that second of all the money amounts here and the federal sentencing guidelines are driven in large part by the dollar amounts Felicity Huffman paid a $15,000 bribe. Other people in this case paid hundreds of thousands of dollars, millions of dollars. So she's on the far low end of that. And then third, Felicity Huffman fully accepted responsibility, and she did it quickly. She took a quick plea. She didn't challenge the prosecutors. She didn't protest in the media. When she went in for sentencing, she made what seemed to me to be a fairly legitimate, sincere Statement about her own culpability and the lessons she learned, and, and that makes a difference. So, even with all of those factors working in her favor, Felicity Huffman still got a jail sentence of 14 days. The sentence that the judge imposed on Felicity Huffman, I think, was a message sentence because it, it's for such a short amount of time. 14 days is almost unheard of as a federal sentence. But I think what the judge was saying here is you do need to go behind bars, you do need to be punished in some way more than probation. And it's, I think, a message to society in general. Felicity Huffman's sentence is bad news for everybody else in this case. It pretty much means they're all going to jail unless they go to trial and get acquitted, which almost never happens in the federal system.
3: Rick Singer saw an opportunity to capitalize on wealthy parents who were looking for every advantage to help their children get into elite colleges. And he turned it into a business that federal prosecutors say generated $25 million. When it all came crashing down, Singer became commonly referred to as a con man. Back in episode six, we heard from Los Angeles defense attorney, Alan Eisner, who made a strong case that the parents who've pled not guilty will likely argue that they were taken advantage of by Singer, that they didn't realize they were doing anything wrong. Normally, a con man exploits unknowing marks. In this case, the parents were in on the scheme. But Maria Konnikova, the New York Times best-selling author of the book The Confidence Game, explains that despite the parents having the knowledge that they were doing wrong, Singer reeled them in, using the same steps of any good con.
0: So the original use of the word confidence man came from William Thompson, from the trial of William Thompson in New York in the 1800s. And he was a man who would... Dress in this three piece suit, fob chain, the whole nine yards, and walk up to other dapper gentlemen on the streets of New York and say, Excuse me, have you the confidence in me to lend me your watch until tomorrow? And that just really caught people off guard because it's not give me your watch or will you give me your watch? It's have you the confidence in me? So that means what world are we living in? How do you see your fellow man? How do you see humanity? do you think that we live in a world where you can trust a gentleman off the street? And by the time he was caught, he had dozens of watches in his apartment because people would give them to him, and hence the term confidence man. And so in this particular instance, the parents who came to Rick knew what they were coming for. They knew that they were here to get their kids into college through the side door. So when he's talking to the co-conspirators, it was just such a classic con artist technique because you can actually see that some of the parents have legitimate concerns that they're voicing. Obviously, they went through with it anyway, and they knew they were going to go through with it. But you could see him basically saying that their concerns aren't legitimate, delegitimizing them right away and saying, oh, well, no, the only way anyone's going to find out is if you tell. Are you going to tell? No, I've never been caught in 20 years. Are you insane? Why would you ever think that? This is foolproof.
1: Let me ask you straight up. You've never had an issue with this? No one has ever gotten in trouble with this?
2: I've never I'm, had an issue with anybody.
1: But what I'm what I'm asking is, is there any way for this to get back to my daughter or to the family? I mean, this comes out. I, I don't even want to know what you guys would do. <laughs> Let me put it differently. If somebody catches this, what happens?
2: The only one who can catch it is if you guys tell somebody.
1: I'm not going to tell anybody.
2: Well, <laughs> neither am I.
1: Yeah, neither am I, I, I hear you. It's just, to be honest, I'm not worried about the moral issue here. I'm worried about the, if she's caught doing that, you
2: know, she's finished.
1: It's never so happened just, before in
2: 20 some odd years. The only way anything can happen is if someone she... Someone talks.
1: So, how do I get this done with you? What do I need to do?
0: When people start seeing red flags in a con, um, and this is a little bit different because they're co conspirators they're not marks the way that typical victims of con artists are, but in a sense, you know, he is lulling them into a story, into this narrative that it's okay, and they are pointing out red flags, and he's saying, no, no, these aren't red flags, and here's why. So the first step, the put-up, It's the moment where the con artist basically stakes out the mark and builds a psychological profile of the mark and tries to figure out, okay, what are your hopes? What are your fears? What motivates you? What are your weaknesses? What are the things you believe in? What is the world that you want to live in? What's the story that you've been telling yourself? Because I'm going to tell you that story. I'm going to mirror your version of reality back to you. That's how I'm going to get you.
2: That's how simple it is. She doesn't know. Nobody knows what happens. It happens. She feels great about herself. And I also need to tell your daughter when she gets tested to be as... To be stupid. Not to be as smart as she is. The goal is to be slow. To be not as bright. All that. So we show discrepancies.
1: I mean, this is... To be honest, it feels a little weird.
2: I know it does. I know it does. But when she gets the score and we have choices... You're going to be saying, okay, I'll take all my kids. We're going to do the same thing. Yeah, I will.
0: Before a con even starts, con artists know us better than we know ourselves. Because we hardly ever take the time to sit down with ourselves and ask ourselves that question. What are my fears? We don't do that. It takes a lot of time. But con artists do that for us. The second step is I am going to tell you a story and get you emotionally involved in it. That's actually what a con artist wants to do as early as possible. Because when we're trying to be objective, when we're trying to really evaluate pros and cons in a hard-minded way, we can't do that if we're emotionally involved. The moment you're emotionally involved in something, you stop being objective, you start being subjective. Your mind, because now I can manipulate the story and your reasoning faculties aren't 100%, so you're not going to be able to see the holes in my argument.
1: Rick. Hey, so you got an NFL punter, huh? You there, Rick? Yes. Oh, there you are. Perfect. Lost you. You got an NFL punter? I did. That's just totally hilarious.
5: So they asked me, what sport can we put him through? And I said, well, I don't want You know, because your school doesn't have football. It's easy. Because I can say, because they have all these kicking camps and these kickers always get picked up outside of the school. Yeah, perfect. Perfect. So I'm going to make him a kicker. (laughs) He does have really strong legs. Yeah. Yeah. Well, this will be for, this will be good for one of them. Maybe
1: he'll, maybe he'll become a kicker. You never know. Yeah, absolutely. You could inspire him, Rick. You may actually turn him into something. I love it. I know. Well, I had a boy last year. I made him a long snapper. and I love it. He was
5: 145 pounds. Long snapper. So
1: I love it. I love it.
0: So now I've got you on board. I've kind of got you emotionally involved. You are now not an outside observer. You're now a part of the story. The breakdown is a part of the con where things start to go wrong, and you actually start seeing red flags, and you would think that at this point, the victim would walk away and would say, "Uh uh-oh, this is a con, I need to stop. But what ends up happening is that they often recommit themselves, they become even more attached to the con, because they describe the inconsistency by saying, oh, if there weren't any red flags... Then it would be a con, but because all of these things are going wrong, this person is genuine. This person wants to help me. The story is legitimate and we're in this together. So it becomes almost like the obstacles unite you and make the story even stronger as opposed to saying, Oh, this is something that I need to step away from. And so this is actually the moment where people oftentimes become even more irrevocably committed to the fraud as a whole, as opposed to the moment where they walk away.
1: I'm just thinking, oh my God. Because you're thinking, does this roll into something where, you know, if they get into the meat and potatoes, is this going to be this front page story with everyone? Well, the the person who'd be on the front well, page... I, but but if they, yes. they went, the, the meat and potatoes of it, which is... Which, which a guy would love to have is, it's so hard for these kids to get into college and look what's going on behind the scenes, and then you know the the embarrassment to everyone in the communities. Oh my God! It would just be, yeah, ugh. I I think we'll definitely pay cash this time, and not not uh, not run it through the other way.
0: After the breakdown, we have a moment which we call the send. And in The Send, this is really kind of the recommitment process where the con artist and you will reunite to pull off this con together. And so this is when the con is actually coming to fruition. This is where you can no longer get out because this is where everything is actually happening and the con comes to the point of no return but you're there together because you've already invested so much yeah i know this is craziness i know it is and then i
2: need you to get him into usc and then i need you to cure cancer and make peace in the middle east (laughs) yeah i can do that i can do that if you can figure out a way to boot your husband out so he treats you well you're treated better
0: that's impossible that's impossible But,
2: you know, peace in the Middle East, you know, Harvard, the rest of it, I have faith in
0: you. So this is really where we say, you know what, we are committed to this, we're in this together, and we're ready for the touch, which is the moment in the con where the con comes to its fruition, the victim is completely taken in, and the con is done.
2: I just wanted to make sure I touched base because I didn't want you to all of a sudden what like yeah what's this call coming from? Okay, yeah. Okay. Totally. All right. So
1: so that's it. So it's it's the IRS. It's not anyone from USC. It's the IRS.
2: That is correct.
1: Okay. Very good.
3: That last voice you heard was a reading of actress Lori Laughlin's words with singer if Felicity Huffman's 14-day prison sentence is at one end of the spectrum in this case, Lori Laughlin and her husband, Massimo Giannulli, may end up at the other end of the spectrum. They paid $250,000 for each of their daughters to not only have their entrance exams taken for them, but to also have fake athletic profiles made to help get them admitted to USC as rowing team recruits. And they've entered a plea of not guilty. Here's CNN legal analyst Ellie Honig.
4: Felicity Huffman is over and done. She's already pled guilty. She's already accepted responsibility. Lori Loughlin is going down a very dangerous path here. Generally speaking, as a prosecutor, the longer someone plays you out in the system, the worse the plea offer gets. The the rule that we always try to enforce as prosecutors is the first plea offer is the best plea offer. Because if you think about it, if you did it the other way, it it would reward people who strung out their cases. You want people to to plead guilty quickly and get it over with. So Lori Laughlin has has not pled guilty. The prosecutors have since added new charges against her and her husband, uh, including money laundering, which carries a pretty heavy hit. So they're now looking at additional charges. And really, Laughlin and her husband have only two options at this point, one of which is to take a plea but it's going to be a tough plea it's going to call for several years in prison or two is go to trial but going to trial in the federal system is a very dangerous proposition for a defendant conservatively speaking 80% of federal trials wind up in conviction some years that ticks up to 90% but you don't want to get tried in federal court. The odds are stacked against you. And if you do get convicted at trial, that's that's a worst case scenario for sentencing. And I think if Laughlin does go down that road and her husband, and I expect they will get convicted, then they're going to be sentenced to, I believe, multiple years in prison if that's how it plays out. The evidence against them seems very, very strong. The, the prosecutors in that case have the most powerful kind of evidence that you can have in a criminal case, which is tapes. When I was a prosecutor, when I would do an, a new case, a new arrest, smart defense lawyers would come up to me. And the first thing they would say is, is this a tape case or not? Because most defense lawyers know if their client's on tape, there's not a heck of a lot they can do about it. The one thing that I'm most curious about in this case is how on earth is Lori Laughlin going to defend herself? The fact that she's not taken a plea yet, it seems to me like they are gearing up for trial.
3: The big question, at least for me, is will any of these sentences move the needle in how parents of means game the college admissions system?
4: This was a message sentence of of a sort to Felicity Huffman, but also a broader message. Under our law, One of the legitimate purposes of sentencing is what we call deterrence, and and that breaks down into two categories. One, there's specific deterrence. You want to make sure, as a judge, that this person in front of you, this particular defendant does not commit any crime ever again and learns from this lesson. I don't think that's really an issue with Felicity Huff. I don't think anyone looks at her and thinks, she's going to be a recidivist. She's going to do this or some other crime again. I think she's more than learned her lesson, not to make excuses for her. The other legitimate purpose of deterrence is what we call general deterrence, which is really sending a message. It's making sure that other people out there understand that these crimes will, will be punished and trying to prevent other people who may be considering committing crimes from committing crimes as well. So I think that'll be a broader societal effect. But most of these frauds tend to be cyclical. There'll be a big case and people become aware of them. And then a few years will pass and one will crop back up and will rinse and repeat.
3: We left off episode six with the note that if there's an antiquated system in place, somebody's out there right now gaming it. And news out of the suburbs of Chicago proves just that. A recent article in ProPublica uncovered the story that parents, some of them doctors and lawyers, have been giving up guardianship of their children to relatives and friends so those children could declare themselves financially independent. And once they did that, they qualified for need-based financial aid and scholarships they otherwise wouldn't be eligible for. The University of Illinois alone has identified 14 applicants who did this. And yes, those kids are taking away opportunities from those who really need them. For those of you who've been following along this season, you've heard various tips we've received relating to this story. We've gotten several tips about elite independent high schools across the country. This wasn't much of a surprise nor a coincidence. Most of the parents indicted in this scandal had children enrolled in top-tier private schools. They acted without the knowledge of those schools, but one tip from a former teacher at a large, and well-known elite private school suggests that at some institutions, there's complicity between administrators and parents.
1: I can tell you that this starts very early on. The school's administration gave me directives that kids in the schools do not fail, that the parents are clients who expect a certain level of customer service. And at one point, I was told to give a student the test questions and answers. I lasted all of eight months until I met my administrator and head of schools where I asked them point blank how they could possibly not see that what they did was completely wrong. The parents expect it. Now, they pay 40K a year to have these services, and teachers are essentially bullied into doing what they want. One teacher told me that when you work here, you check your integrity at the door. She told me about one incident where a student who is considered untouchable because the kid cannot do any wrong or get anything less than an A. And they told her she needed to change the grade. Everything I've heard in the podcast is dead on. But the part a lot of people don't get is that it starts much earlier than the college admissions process. This is embedded in the school's culture, and everyone just goes along with it. It, Crazy.
3: We want to emphasize that examples like this one seem to be the exception rather than the rule. But many schools, like the one just described, do have one thing in common. They are incentivized to have their students perform well. High rankings equals money, no matter what level the school is at.
5: Here's a little inside baseball for you. True story. Ten years ago, maybe a little bit longer, I'm having a conversation with the director of admission at one of the most highly selective universities in the country.
3: That's Mark DeJardin, the headmaster at the St. John's School in Houston. St. John's is regarded as one of the top independent K-12 schools in the country. And Mark describes an encounter he had with a top
5: university official. And I happened to be there just, I wanted to learn a little bit more about some of the work they were doing in engineering And I had a tour of the engineering department, which was great. And I just did a drive by and happened to catch the director of admission who I had a previous relationship with at a different institution. I caught him on his last day of work. So let's just say he was very free with his opinion. And (laughs) I was a little caught off guard. I just said, so wow, Um, you know, you've been here for a relatively short time you're you're out the gate now. What's going on? He was told by the trustees, then through the trickle down to the president of the university, that they needed to get a certain SAT score average for their incoming class, because they were going to go out in the bond market and they were going to borrow an enormous amount of money to do some major building campaigns. And getting X number of increases in the SAT score was going to result in a better bond rate. And so, as he said, I spent my spring taking kids who had great test scores and lousy characters, and I just didn't feel good about it. There's a business side to, to higher education, and these rankings really start to become something that institutions drive to try to meet. Directors of admissions will get fired, and presidents' jobs will be in jeopardy if the benchmarks in US News and World Report doesn't hit certain metrics. That's just not good. It starts to become a vicious cycle. At the end of the day, you talk about gangster capitalism. They are businesses, and they're operating as businesses. And they're going to do what's in their best interest. Anybody that doesn't think that is not living in reality. Mark
3: says that the mythology surrounding the college rankings that's been artificially inflated from outlets such as U.S. News and World Report can mean more money for the school, and misguided parents become hyper-focused on these rankings. And so he's doing what he can in his school to change the conversation.
5: I'm gonna be a pessimist here, and I'm gonna say that you cannot reform the college admissions industrial complex. It is too big to fail. There are too many incentives for them to continue to do what they've always done. And so I think the secret's gonna be, if there's gonna be a pendulum change, it really has to come from parents who just say, this is enough. We've done this exercise within our community because we view parents as an important partner and we want to help educate parents on the type of anxiety that kids are feeling. And so we'll meet separately with the kids and we'll get get them to raise their hand and ask them the following question. Raise your hand if you feel pressure to look at a college not because you're interested in it but because you want to make your parents happy and invariably 80 90% of the of the hands go up and then when we have the parents we'll ask them you know, raise your raise your hand if you think that your child is under pressure to explore options that are only uh, being done to make you happy. And, you know, 10% of the parents are honest, right? And they'll raise their hand, and of course, then we say, it's actually interesting, we actually talk to your kids, and about 90% of them raise their hand. I think that's a conversation that you should have around your dinner table tonight. It's not where I want my child to be for the next four years after they're 18, but what kind of adult do I want them to be at the age of 40? We want them to be good spouses. We want them to be good parents. We don't want them to sacrifice their ethics or their morals. We want them to use their gifts to make the world around them a better place. So I think this is how we begin to change the, the narrative of the conversation. And if the parents are out there that are listening to this, if you stop and ask that question, that is a game-changing type of conversation.
3: Parents often reach out to Mark to ask him what the best possible summer internship would be for their child. And his advice probably isn't what you'd expect from someone in his position.
5: There's this tendency of parents in my generation, I'm 54, to, I call it resume sculpt. And starting at age 12 and 13, is to be very strategic and targeted about what type of experiences kids can have in order to build a brand. And boy, that puts a lot of pressure on kids because do they really want to do this, right? Do they get a sense of joy and self-satisfaction from the work they're doing? And it reminds me of my first job when I was 12 years old is I had a lawn business. And I'll never forget the first lawn I cut and the first time that money was put in my hand for a job done and the self-satisfaction that i got from that transaction and i i think putting kids in situations particularly when they're when they're young and we've seen this there's a crisis of um in summer jobs kids don't do summer jobs anymore and i think doing difficult tasks i think being uh, held accountable for being at a job on time and doing a job, and you know, even though it may not fit into some larger, <laughs> you know, larger scheme of uh, becoming a hedge fund manager, or what we're or getting to a particular C-suite. I, I think you would talk to people, you know, myself included. My life experiences have been made much better by being in a position of understanding and and appreciating what it what it's like. Uh, to, to work and, and to work not with an in towards a means, just work to put money in your pocket work because it's you know teaching you responsibility. And I, I think that parents of my generation have sort of um, have lost that lost that opportunity um, by focusing just on these uh, on these internships. Uh, and I think it really robs kids an opportunity, to build grit, to build resiliency, and to learn some very important uh, lifelong lessons. Sometimes when they ask me for advice that, you know, one of the best things that their kid can do to really differentiate themselves is hold a job. Go work at McDonald's.
3: Essentially, what Mark suggests, character over brand, is the exact opposite of Rick Singer's advice.
5: So I'm listening to your podcast and particularly this segment on Rick Singer and listening to how he started impressing upon parents the importance of kids having a brand and owning that brand. And that's the only way that they're going to distinguish themselves. Your brand can take you to places you've never dreamed. Make sure you bring your brand there with you. Wherever you go, whatever you do, Remember your elevator pitch. So it was a aha moment for me because about 12 years ago, I started to get phone calls from parents asking me, what are we doing to make sure that we're branding kids and making sure that our kids have a distinctive brand? And what are we doing to make sure that our, our kids are standing out? And of course... I think the interesting thing is if you talk to the people who, on the other end, who are reading admission files, um, they'll tell you that they're looking for authenticity. That's something that's really important for them. Um, you know, is this is this individual that we're reading about, are, are they really an individual that truly believes in all the things that, you know, I'm reading on this, uh, on you know, on this application? And I think that their BS detectors are are pretty pretty stout. And actually, one of the worst things that that I think you can do for, for kids is, is to brand them in some you know inauthentic way. So anyway, I was amazed at Singer's ability to zero in and target this fear and anxiety of these parents and have a message that just moved the needle so far.
3: Way back in episode one of this series, I confronted Rick Singer in the parking lot of a public pool club in St. Petersburg, Florida. Rick, is the system broken? Rick, no comment? Singer, tanned and shirtless with a hat on backwards, didn't have anything to say as he got into his Porsche SUV with two paddle boards on the roof. We spent the next several episodes trying to figure out who Rick Singer was, and how did he become the mastermind of this scandal? We met some people who were close with him. You know, the truth is, uh, I love the guy.
2: And I say to myself, what happened to my friend?
3: Somewhere along the way, Rick Singer took a turn and saw that he could make money exploiting the system filled with anxious parents obsessed with status. He wrote books about branding yourself as a student.
5: Brands can be replaced. Brands can be rebuilt. Brands can be changed.
3: And framed himself as the only person who could work magic.
2: I can make scores happen, and nobody on the planet can get scores to
3: happen. But Rick Singer had always claimed that his main interest was helping underprivileged kids get into college. This was part of his own branding. Before the first episode aired, we got in touch with Rick Singer's attorney. We said that in fairness, we'd like to give an opportunity for those who held Singer in high regard to speak on his behalf. The attorney said he'd consider putting us in touch with some of the kids Singer had helped who would be able to speak to the other side of Rick Singer. After two follow-ups which went unanswered, we finally received an email response, which reads in part, Your podcasts define your moral values as well as your sponsor, Hawking. I will not provide any information to you regarding this matter now or at any time. Integrity is the stock and trade of legitimate journalists you failed the test. The other side of Rick Singer will be eventually well-documented in my sentencing memorandum. End quote. We'll look forward to hearing more about the other side of Rick Singer when he's sentenced. (music) Thanks again for listening to Gangster Capitalism, Season 1, The College Admissions Scandal. We've begun production on season two, and we'll be announcing the topic after the new year. If you've enjoyed the show, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. Gangster Capitalism is a production of C-13 Originals. It's written and directed by me, Andrew Jenks, and Zach Levitt. Executive produced by me, Chris Corcoran, and Zach Levitt. Produced by Lloyd Lockridge, Perry Crowell, and Terrence Malingone. Editing by Perry Crowell and Zach Levitt. Mixing and mastering by Bill Schultz. Artwork and design is by Kurt Courtney. Original score is by Joel Goodman. And the theme song is Your Sins Will Find You Out by Eli Paperboy Reed. For more information, go to gangstercapitalism.com. Send any tips to tips at gangstercapitalism.com. And follow us on Instagram at Gangster Capitalism or on Twitter at Gangster Capital. You can always follow me on Twitter and Instagram at Andrew Jenks.